Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Future Food Weekly with myself, Sonali Figueres of Green Feet Queen and my co-host Steve Molino of Clear Current Capital. Hey Steve. Hey Sonali, we are back. We are back. We are back. And yet again, another news-packed week. So many things going on. Um, let's let's dive in. Yeah, let's let's do it. So what's what's the the big story for this week? Yeah, so our newsletter editor picked um this UK plant-based fro merger as uh, as our writer wrote it. So basically, <laughs> uh two UK vegan cheese companies, one that is mo- mo- more well known for its vegan pizzeria, Puretta, though they also have their own lines of vegan cheeses including what I understand to be a very popular vegan mozzarella that is also very good um, technically as a meltable pizza cheese um, has has merged with La Fomagerie, uh, the London-based vegan cheesemonger. So La Fomagerie is a vegan cheese shop that has that sold third-party cheeses, but is but also had its own range. So, um, and it it looks like. Purezza is sort of maybe taking over La Fromagerie sales. Um, what's interesting is both of the companies are female-led and both are in the in the premium plant-based cheese space. So I would say not so much just, you know, coconut oil and potato starch type, you know, Violife, Daya Foods type of feel, like more Miyoko level premium in the UK market. Um and I think, I think just another, another consolidation story from the UK after VFC bought, you know, Clive's and, and, and VFC bought Meatless Farms. I mean, it just, it just feels like there's consolidation in, in the market. Um, it's, we're not seeing as many stories like this from the US or from Europe, um, but it's interesting in the UK, it just seems like, you know, maybe the market is just not big enough to support everybody and it makes more sense to join forces and uh, and kind of you know go at it together. Yeah, I mean it's it, that's definitely what it sounds like to me, and and it's funny because like I I I think the UK is not the same as the rest of the world. Like I always joke that that good things happening in plant based uh, or all protein or like for consumers it happens in the UK first, and I'm jealous, but. In, in reality, the consumers really just are different there. And and one thing that I, I thought was interesting that was in this piece was it called out that um, that in the UK, not only are, are, is is the market for plant based cheese maybe maybe like slowing down in terms of growth or or stalling, but it actually seems like consumers there are eating less traditional cheese, which that is not common in like the rest of the world, at least in the US dairy dairy consumption is dropping pretty pretty quickly but not for cheese cheese consumption is going up a lot so it's really all, all about liquid dairy so it, it's just another example of how the uk is very different and um i do like this combination of these two types of, of companies though because they don't do exactly the same thing so um it sounds like they might really be complementary to each other so maybe this was forced consolidation because the market's not able to support both of them but I think it still sounds like it's um, logical consolidation where there could be some synergies between them. So it's, it's an interesting one. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, fun fact, I was just diving into some China data and dairy consumption in China is up 11% and growing. So not, not great for uh, emissions and obviously not super great for cows. Yeah, that's a crazy number, like 11%. Like these markets are already massive. So to grow grow by that much, that's I think what people that, I think what people don't realize is um the Chinese government actually is very committed to uh making sure that Chinese people consume dairy. There's actually a an official government amount of milk that you should drink or dairy products that you should eat every day as a citizen. So it's part of the national guidelines from the government, which is so interesting because obviously traditionally, you know, hundreds of years ago, dairy was really not part of the average Chinese person's diet, except in areas like maybe Mongolia, right? Where they, they were a nomadic um, pasture uh, led tribal system and dairy was definitely part of their daily diet. But in the rest of China, not at all. And in fact, you know, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the average Chinese person doesn't necessarily have the enzymes to uh, break down lacto lactose, the sugar, the car, you know, the the sugars in milk. So it's just it's really interesting. But um, there's growing no, definitely. growing demand for quality milk products, fresh milk, um, and you know, milk related to nutrition. So for older populations, for infants, um, for sports nutrition, it's just a growing market for health-related products. I was looking yesterday because uh, China just had their big singles day, which is like the biggest shopping day of the year in China, right? On the 11th of November, 11-11. Um, it's pretty much like the most important retail event for the Chinese market. And for a lot of Asian markets, actually, just because a lot of people are selling to China Chinese customers in the world really. So it's like, you know, it's kind of like the Black Friday of China, um, but much bigger in terms of the numbers um, because there's just so many more people. And um, one of the biggest categories that saw something like 300% growth was health foods and health related supplements and all of that. That yeah. is really, really interesting. And like, I guess if the, the government is saying that dairy is a is a part of, it's like a, you need it for your health, then they're going to just throw that in there with, with the health supplement side. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's also just really interesting really quickly. Like, well, like I, I just like, I wonder, like you said, there's 11% growth in, in, in China for, for dairy last year, which I just think is crazy. Just to like put that into perspective, I just like quickly looked it up. Like what's the, the, dairy market size in, in China. I don't know if this number is, is exactly right. It's from Ibis World, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad from a data standpoint, but it's saying it's $81 billion. Um, so if it, if it, and that was in 2022. So if it grew by 11%, you're looking at over $8 billion in growth, which just to put that into perspective, I'm pretty sure that the numbers out there for US alt protein uh, is, is around $7 billion. So the growth in dairy in China is actually bigger than the alt protein market in the U.S. Um, again, maybe the numbers are off, plus or minus a little sure. bit, but, uh, just but like, yeah, Jesus. Just <laughs> right. That is like, that's crazy. Grow. 
it's expected to grow more and more premium categories to come. Like for example, categories like yogurt are doing well. Categories like cheese are still very under-consumed in China, but but growing. Um, then there's all sorts of things like ice creams and things like that. So like added value dairy products are also growing as well. Um, but still yeah. tiny parts of the market. Because basically as yeah. consumers are becoming wealthier, they are going towards, you know, more premium added value products. And it makes sense. And, and I think these, these types of, there's like referencing the, the traditional markets, the incumbent animal product markets is important from time to time. Cause I think it's important to celebrate the wins in, in the sustain, sustainable food space. Like you don't want to always be like doom and gloom. You want to celebrate the wins. But um, I think, I think it's, it's important to remember that even if, our space might be growing a little bit in certain categories, like the the percent growth rates in the larger animal product markets might be smaller, but the absolute volume that that represents is likely much, much bigger. So we have a lot of work to do, um, which is actually maybe maybe a good a good segue into the next next thing that we we were going to talk about, which is um, Tyndall Foods, which is plant based chicken. So there was something in the newsletter that called out the the covers that you and your team did on Tyndall where they're about to enter uh, the the U.S. retail market. So they've been in the U.S. for in in the food service space, and this is this is a Singapore headquartered plant based meat company. Um, so now they're entering U.S. retail, and I'm I'm really interested to see what type of in, impact they could they can make because in my mind, <clears throat> and I'd love to hear. You, your thoughts on this in my mind the u.s retail plant-based chicken market is is super super crowded right there are, there are so many brands that exist out there there are probably 10 20 plus brands that are out there and and the, and the piece that you guys did hits on a lot of those um, but not only are there a, not only are there a lot of them but some of them have had to exit the market because it is too crowded it's hard to differentiate but the reason I'm interested in Tyndall is because they have raised a lot of money. They've had rounds that were a hundred million plus, and that's not normal. And I've I've heard that the team uh, you were actually mentioning it that the team is really impressive. That these are people who have done this before in different markets, so it's not a bunch of people who are winging it and trying to figure it out. It's so it, it might be the right team with the necessary amount of money to push for growth and i'm curious to see if they're able to stand out amongst a, a crowded marketplace absolutely i mean i i've always been very ad admirative of, of tyndall i i think if you were to do a, a sort of a a guide to how to start a startup i would say tyndall um is 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 someone to follow uh the two founders are experienced executors. One of them comes from a big meat, uh, big food background. So understands supply chain, understands manufacturing, understands the meat business. The other one is an exited plant-based meat founder. He founded Like Meat, the plant-based chicken in Europe and sold it to uh, uh, Live Kindly Collective. Um, so he's had the exit. So th these are people who have done this before, know what they're doing, understand, you know, went into this understanding how manufacturing works. They've been very clever with manufacturing. They did not get involved in like, you know, 
investing in their own plant or what have you uh, messing around with that. They've always outsourced the manufacturing with vetted partners um, that has made them very asset light. Um, They have had a global vision from the start. Um, Very, very good team. I've worked with multiple people in the company and just, just really impressive profiles, doers, executors, also great attitude. It seems like a really nice place to work at. The team seems really um, connected and and aligned, Um, but also a company that I think understood that they had raised phenomenally well. Um, Probably, I think their Series A was was an award-winning, was a a kind of record-breaking Series A in the space. I think it's the biggest uh, plant-based Series A ever. Um, have the hundred million that was on top it's of gotta be. the thirty million yeah. they had. So, so they raised about a hundred and thirty thirty-five ish million. Let's call it maybe one hundred thirty-two. Um, they started out in Singapore again. Again, very smart. Um, Singapore was the right place to be when they started. You know, building up the government was really building up the the food tech narrative. Singapore has become a, a locus of food tech ecosystems lots of support from the government, lots of talent. Um, so they, they they really like use that as a springboard, but also both being very experienced immediately knew that, you know, they needed to be in Europe, Germany, the probably the, the most advanced, you know, flexitarian market in, in, in Europe, the UK, probably the most uh, exciting vegan product market around just in terms of, of, of sheer choices and just number of vegans. And then the U.S., you know, the biggest consumer market for food in the, in the world. So they've been very strategic, very smart, kept their eye on the their 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 eye on the ball. And now they're probably, I mean, I'm assuming sitting on you know a good amount of runway compared to lots of other companies, not really having to raise, um, and 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 being at probably very strategic and disciplined about about you know making sure that they they don't over spend that money in. And I think they've always been good like that. Um, so yeah. it, it just show you that, you know, there is something to be said for track records and experience. Um, but that being said, as you said, they, and when this is something we, we touched on the article, we interviewed JJ Cast, now the U.S. Managing Director of Tyndall, um, really brilliant uh, professional, really enjoy speaking to her so that our reporter spoke to her and and, and said to her, you know, this is a crowded space. Like, do we need more alternative chicken plant-based products? You know, it's really interesting how they're looking at it. I think they're very much looking at, at each product as fulfilling like a dining need or a food service need or a cooking need for the consumer. And they feel like their product, you know, hits that nail, hits that, that, that goal. And I think that that, yeah, and I think that they're thinking about it the right way. I do think possibly they're they're overestimating how much thought goes into purchasing plant-based chicken in the frozen section of retail. I I think it's different in food service where it could be prepared differently, but um, but I I I can appreciate that that approach because I I think if you if a if a consumer is only going to give plant-based one shot, maybe two shots, then if they at least maybe try Tyndall and if Tyndall's putting a lot of thought into what 
that consumer wants and that exact experience, um, and it hits it hits on that, then they might come back for more. So that's that's a good thing. Um, I I I really just want to see what happens because I am skeptical of one company all of a sudden overtaking um, of all the other marketplace participants unless they're able to do it in the right way like a cpg would so if they and it sounds like they have that team right so maybe they're really going to emphasize like what's needed from a cpg which is penetrating that market getting like creating consumer brand awareness uh i don't know if they're doing any type of marketing campaigns around it but i'd hope it's not just put it in retail in the frozen section and hope that people buy it but there's actually some type of awareness campaign that goes with it and i'm not doubting them right like i don't want to make it sound like i'm doubting them but I just I think that um, it's going to be interesting to see if they do it right, where, where some companies may may not have. And then the only other thing I'd add is you were hitting on this idea that they raised so much money and they're being thoughtful about their cash. I did talk to someone from Tyndall uh, when I was at the, the GFI conference a, a month or so ago, um, and they mentioned that ideally the company's thinking about it in a way where they, they might ne never have to raise again. And who knows if that's the case, but I think it just shows that they're not thinking, well, you raised 100, 135 million in the past. We'll just keep raising. I think they're thinking, well, we really did a great job doing that. And now let's take advantage of that, that cash position and try to get to a point where we may never need to raise again. And that's, that's a great mentality to have. Exactly. No, that's what I mean. They're being very disciplined and they're just, they're not setting themselves up for thinking we're going to, like the money's going to keep flowing. And that's really where you need to be and how you need to be thinking. You know, no, I couldn't agree I, more. And I, I mean, can say that there I are see other companies, companies not thinking that way. Yeah, exactly. There are smaller companies that definitely need cash that are not thinking that way. Um, so, so well done. I mean, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be possible to out to outperform the competition. And but one thing is, you know, Tyndall has multiple product formats. It's not just a nugget. They have patties. They have wings. Um, they have uh, they have popcorn chicken. So let's see. It's going to be interesting. But certainly, I guess my point would be if anyone can 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 kind of execute right, my money would be on them. So let's let's see where where they take it. Yeah, I mean that's what it sounds like. And you've heard me say before. I care almost only about the team and and early stage companies so it sounds like this is a, a really good team um but what, what what stood out in the newsletter for you um well actually there was a lot of stuff this week and i'm just gonna mention it in passing but you know there was uh the chinese company Celex, who just which which has been working on cultivated uh, pork and and a little bit on cultivated seafood has now decided that they're going into um biomass fermentation mycelium um, so that, I, I thought that was something to call out, uh, and they're going to be kind of maybe launching a hybrid product. There was, um, there's a really interesting company out of California called Triple Bar, a biotech startup where, um, the CEO and her team have figured out a way to help make precision fermentation and cultivated meat more scalable and more affordable on a shortened time timeline. They're essentially engineering dna to like do what they want it's i met the founder in person in singapore and i'll have more to say about that but she's absolutely fascinating and also an experienced founder 
um, there was a whole kerfuffle around the Czech startup Vene Meat uh, because they there was a misunderstanding about their news and it, it, it was misreported across multiple outlets that they basically got EU regulatory approval for cultivated pet food. And that's actually not at all what happened. What happened is they registered with the EU feed, European feed materials register, which essentially any company can do. And technically that would allow them to be, to be officially registered and, and they use the word certified to sell, but it, Basically, the EU feed material register does not grant approvals or certification. So as a company, you can just apply to be on it, right? You can submit your registration. So that was a whole mess. I mean, even Reuters like re reported it as like the EU giving the green light. So for a while, people were really confused. So that was a whole mess. Um, but that being said, we did a story about that, but also about uh, positioning it in the wider cultivated um, and plant-based pet food space, which is, I think, a bright spot of the whole alternative protein industry because pet food has just got such a big emissions footprint and pet ownership is growing so much. We talked about dairy in China. Well, one thing that's growing in China is pet ownership. Um, folks in China are having fewer kids. They're having more pets. Um, and that's, you're seeing that happening across Asia. You're seeing that happening in Europe. You're seeing that happening in the U.S. So pets are just, it's its a really an interesting kind of area to look at. Um, yeah. And, and, and just yeah. To, to chime in real quick on that one, just to put it into perspective, like for people that might not be aware, like out of all of the meat that is produced and consumed globally, which is over a trillion dollar market from a revenue standpoint, one fifth, so 20% of that roughly goes to, to pet food. So yes, a lot of that that meat is stuff that not wouldn't necessarily end up on a consumer's plate, um, but it adds a massive, massive revenue stream for the meat space. And and again, from an emission standpoint, that's huge. So tackling the pet food market, this isn't some small thing. Like as you mentioned, pet pet ownership is growing and like worldwide, but um, this isn't some like oh one two percent of the market is is going to, to pet food from a meat standpoint, this is big. This is a really, really big thing. So um, I think that the consumer adoption is going to be higher there because it's it's not a really big behavior change for the owners. They're not the ones eating it, right? So if you can get cultivated or, or, or precision fermentation products in there, or even plant-based, it's just going to be an easier sell. Um, and there's it's a, it's a huge market to, to hit on, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um... I, I'm seeing some bright spots also in valuations and just interest from, from VCs. And it's just obviously like after everything that went down with plant-based meat and the hype and, and kind of readjustments of the market, you know, I think investors and, and ecosystem players are looking for kind of new, new kind of pockets of hope and definitely pet food, alternative pet food is, is one of them. And that I think brings us to the story you wanted to talk about, which is also another niche area that is growing in interest which one is that <laughs> uh seafood association oh yeah 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 so sorry yeah so this is this is the the positive right and um of the positive that i wanted to hit on for the week and so in in the newsletter we have the there's a new industry association that, that has been created 
and it's called Future Ocean Foods. So basically, this is a group of 36 uh, alternative seafood producers uh, that are coming together, that are trying to work together to push the alt seafood sector forward. And this is across plant-based, cultivated, fermentation, et cetera. So it's not just one group of companies. And I think the reason for me that this was really something that I see as a positive is because I think over the past few years, we've seen that as it's been, I guess, harder to either grow the companies or even raise money to continue to push the companies forward, things have shifted a little bit from let's focus on making the food system better and taking taking a share away from animal products that are harmful to the planet and animals. Um, and it's shifted from that more so to how do we compete against the other alt protein or sustainable food companies? So it's kind of been a little bit of infighting. And I think that that's exactly what could be a hindrance to the space. We, we need progress to be done collectively because it's an insane idea to think that any individual startup is all of a sudden going to overtake the the animal product market. Like even just seafood right now, we're looking at this new association, Future Ocean Foods. Like the seafood space, I'm pretty sure there's about 200 million metric tons of seafood that is that is consumed annually on a global level. No, no single company is going to be able to take to take all of that. That's just that's an irrational idea. So I love seeing that over 30 companies who all do different things and technically they could be competition. They're working together to push consumer attitudes in the right direction and push the, the whole sea, alt seafood space in the right direction. Um, and the reality is I'm sure there's, there's, there's details behind the scenes that maybe are not as clean or, um, or positive, but uh, the fact that this is happening at all, I think is a, is a good step forward for, for the space. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting watching kind of all the associations come up and knowing some of the people that have helped uh, promote or, or or kind of create some of these associations in the fermentation space, in the cultivated space, um, in the plant-based space. And, you know, I think if anything, we probably need more of these. Um, seafood's been interesting because in all the reports that I've seen specifically in the U.S. market, plant-based seafood is one of the areas in plant-based that that's showing growth. Um, the question is going to be, you know, how much can the market support? Um, and, you know, can, do we need like 10 battered uh, plant-based battered fish products similarly to the nuggets? And I, I just like, I don't think that Americans eat as much uh, fish as they do kind of chicken nuggets or, or burgers. So, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, However, there's a lot more variety in seafood. You know, there's shrimp and there's like, there's like tuna that's for sashimi versus like cooked fish for a battered sandwich. And so it, I, I think it's great to see an, an association and 36 members right from the get-go shows you that they were probably waiting to have an association to help them um, kind of get things done. Uh, we did ask the founder, Marissa Brompen, um, what is she working on and whether it was going to be around policy and whether it was going to be around, um, you know, getting like, like, was it, what were the goals essentially? And for now, the goals is really more like community and, and maybe some content. 
Um, she said they were working on on putting together a report with with good numbers because a lot of times plant based seafood gets buried under plant based meat, and so I think that probably if you're in plant based seafood, you really want to have like your own kind of flag under which to 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 shout from in the media, you know, and not just kind mm-hmm. of get buried under burgers and nuggets. Um, and the other thing is the there's a it's a little bit different with seafood, the motivations for like why someone would choose alternative. And I think there's a little bit more of a, of a solid argument to maybe choose the alternatives for health. Because a lot of people choose fish because they want the omega-3s or they think it's healthier than animal meat, right? But one of the things about fish that's different is we are actually running out of fish. We're not running out of cows, right? Um, Mm -hmm. we have more cows than ever. So it's, it's a bit of a different math where you may not be a vegan and you may not be an animal rights person, but you may feel bad about the fact that there's no more fish in the ocean. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And And I think you have a very different relationship with the beach and with the ocean than you do with like a cow on a farm, which for some people might be something they never interact with. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's your, your motivations are different, which is where I feel like alternative seafood has a bit of a different play. And then the omegas come from algae, right? Like we know that the salmon eats algae and that's why they have the omegas. And so like, we can just eat the algae, true, but we can also put the algae in plant-based seafood, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, it for me that it is quite different, but yet it's a very tiny market. I think if you look at the numbers, it's like less than a percent of like the whole space. Or maybe it's yeah, like it's super small. Right. Yeah, I think like overall revenues are estimated to be anywhere between like forty to fifty-ish million, and that's like total, like across all companies. And a lot of these companies are at the scale-up phase, where they're they're just coming out of the the, the the lab phases, or or if they're in the plant-based side, like they're just building their pilot plants. So that'll change quite quickly, but it's so small right now. And to your point about like the consumer. Uh, demand drivers for seafood. I think to your point, it's, I think it's both a good thing and a, and a hurdle that will they'll have to be overcome that they're focused on seafood for health reasons, because yes, to your point, we could just put those things that they're looking for in these products like omega threes, right? Like, like, and, and we could do it with, with ingredients that are, are natural. And that's a good thing, but it's not just about putting them in there, but getting the consumer to understand that this actually is healthy. So if they wanted to have salmon, if they wanted to have some type of fish, that that going to a plant-based offering or another alt-protein offering is still giving them that health benefit that they're looking for because it is not quote-unquote natural, right? Like there isn't a, like a, a natural plant-based salmon filet that exists in the world. We are creating it in a new way. So there will kind of probably be this hesitant hesitancy around going from traditional salmon to to a plant-based version but so it's about it's about getting them to understand that that it that that offering still exists and then also to your point at the end of the day if you want salmon and there's no more salmon left in the ocean um then you're kind of but and salmon is expensive steve in a way that like ground cheap beef is not Mm -hmm. and and the other thing is that yes uh, we need to get them to understand but salmon like fish in the ocean have other issues. They have toxins, they have uh, diseases, they have microplastics. 
Whereas it's, you know, it's different than how we've been brainwashed to kind of think about the happy cow. Yeah. And, and I, I and am there's a lot though, more work consumers. from a lot more parties, right? There's conservationists, overfishing people, you know, ethical people, vegans, like there's all different kinds of parties, the anti-plastic people, anti-waste people. So all of this is producing content about what's wrong with eating all this fish. So Definitely. It's, not, it's coming from one side and it's not just one argument, like with the beef. I, I, I fully, fully agree. And what, what I find interesting, and this is obviously like, like anecdotal evidence of just like things I've seen, but for some reason, um, and, and this is a good thing, but for some reason, it seems like from people I talk to that do eat, do eat seafood and, and fish, uh, that idea of microplastics has really stuck. So like, I don't know that they always know about like the the labor issues that are going on in seafood or the human rights issues or things like that, or even bycatch. But um, the plastic idea, I, like I've heard people say like, yeah, I think if you eat like too much seafood, you could be eating like a credit card's worth of plastic a year or more. And that really is like something that has stuck with people that I've spoken to. So um, things, the negative sides of traditional seafood are, are, are starting to really stick with consumers. So I think it's a good timing to see that this is the startup space is really about to kind of expand quite, quite broadly. Exactly. Well, that's a really good positive to end on, don't you think? I, I agree. And it's funny because like when you, you said like, what story was I going to bring up? I'm not going to lie. What I was, my attention was taken away from was you used the word kerfuffle in an earlier part of this this podcast. And I was like, I haven't heard of that word in like <laughs> 10 years. So what I was doing was Googling kerfuffle and the origins of it. And then you were like, and what story did you want to talk about? And I'm like, ah, uh, what? So that's that's what's happening on my end. This is officially uh, why you're the right person for me to do this with, because you're the only other person I know that would be Googling stuff while talking live on a show. Um, yeah, I, I mean, well, can you can you blame me like that type no. of word? And by the way, I spelled it right the first time, and I'm very proud of myself. Oh, so, good one. spelling bee. Yeah. Okay, good one. I, so now I'm gonna try to work kerfuffle into either today or tomorrow's vocabulary and conversation, and and I'll, I'll take it from there. But but that's yeah, what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, you are. I love it. Brilliant. <laughs> Well, that's and I know that's what our listeners come in here to listen to. Of course, all <laughs> our, our giggles and silliness. That's why they're here. Not not all the future foodies. Um, well, that's a perfect one to end on. So um, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you all back next week where we'll certainly have many more stories to discuss. And Steve, have a good rest of the week over there in NYC. Thank you. I appreciate it. You too. Uh, avoid any kerfuffles. <laughs> absolutely i'll stay away from any hullabaloos oh ooh, i did it again <laughs> oh wow that's impressive okay <laughs> all right see everyone next week